Well, our text is the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah chapter 63. Short passage there. It is a traditional reading for the first Sunday after Christmas. Hopefully we'll see why. In its original setting in Isaiah, it's immediately preceded by a passage which speaks of the Lord's coming and final judgment. And our text itself looks back to the Exodus, the Exodus event, the founding event in Israel's history. So here, in this text in Isaiah 63, Israel finds herself situated between the Exodus and the future promise of rest and glory. And so we want to read the text this morning as situating us between the great Exodus, the great event of salvation which has come in Jesus Christ, which he himself calls his Exodus. Right? Luke chapter 9, I must go to Jerusalem and accomplish my Exodus. Right? We want to see ourselves between the great Exodus, the great event of salvation, and the end. Between Christmas and consummation. Right? That's where we're situated. We've repeatedly seen that the only season or the only time in which the church can exist is the time of Advent. The time of looking back in remembrance, right? And then looking forward in anticipation. The church lives in that tension. And so here in this text, the church remembers, rejoices, and hopes. This text is a vivid Old Testament picture of the gospel. It is what I've titled uh, Christmas in the Old Testament. And so we'll make two points. They're there in your bulletin. The source and the Savior. So, first the source. Now, notice how this lovely verse begins and ends. It begins and ends with the word kindnesses. Right, the underlying word is hesed, and we said a lot about that word, you might remember in our series on Ruth's, the letter, the book of Ruth. It's a word that is so rich, hesed, and, and so evocative that it's impossible to translate it with one term. Sometimes it's just translated as love. Sometimes it's translated as mercy. Sometimes it's translated as steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. And sometimes, as here, simply as kindness. Kindness. It's a term which speaks of God's unceasing, right? His perpetual, unmeasured, covenant generosity. It's a beautiful term. It speaks of God's loyalty to you. His fierce loyalty. It speaks of God's love as a passionate reality, as a living attachment. And here, in Isaiah 63, I want you to notice that it's in the plural. Kindnesses. Both at the beginning and at the end of the verse. And here, the the plural means bounty, fullness, overflowing, plentitude, Every possible aspect of hesed, of divine kindness. That is what the prophet is celebrating. And it's in response to this that the prophet begins, I will tell. I will tell, I will declare the kindnesses, the hesed's, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. 
Or perhaps better, I will cause to be remembered because when we confess, when we sing, when we pray, when we tell, we're causing to be remembered the kindnesses of God. These acts of speech by the church are acts of remembrance. We remind God of his own promises, of his own actions. Right? That's what prayer is. That's what confession is. We talk to God about God. We plead with God, who has been faithful, to continue to uphold the covenant. We remember. And in remembering, we not only, if you will, remind God, we remind ourselves. We remind the world. We remind the principalities and powers of who our great God is. And what he's done. This is the noble calling of Christian prayer and praise, especially assembled prayer and praise. We remind the world of who he is and what he's done because in Hesed, he acts. Right? This is the only way God acts. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the prophet says, the deeds. The deeds for which he is to be praised. So, of course, when you think about these deeds in the Old Testament, right, the first thing we think of is the Exodus event. It's the great deed. It's the, the paradigm of saving action in the Old Testament. But we move on from there, right? The whole history of Israel is a divine river of good deeds flowing out, which the prophet says must be remembered, for which God must be praised. And when you stand where we stand, right, on the other side of the greater exodus wrought by Christ, and deep into the history of the church, we have even greater reason to tell or to remember the mighty deeds of God. For all of these things, the text says, notice this, are done for us. The mighty deeds God has done for us. Granted to us, not because of any merit. In fact, granted to us in the teeth of our demerit. These deeds of God are legion. And they are called here in the text, notice, the many good things he has done for Israel. The many good things. There's no paucity or scarcity or lack of material for you to extol and to exalt and to declare and to celebrate God. There are many great things that he's done. And so we're called to this kind of telling, this kind of recounting. And you see it, as I mentioned, in the Psalms. Long Psalms tracing out the history of God's action in Israel. You know where else you see it? You see it in the great and the ancient liturgies of the church, especially at the Eucharist. Those liturgies are full of long prayers recounting the history of Israel and its culmination in Jesus Christ. And its continuation in the church. This is in part why we have the prayer of thanksgiving and the Lord's prayer right there. As the church enters into the great act of thanksgiving in the Eucharist. We do this because there it is seen most vividly the great actions of God for which we are to be thankful. So, we have to learn to pray like historians. 
historians of redemption, historians of salvation, narrators of the great works of God. This is a big part of what the psalmists and the prophets do. And if we're going to render thanks to God for all of his benefits, to all of the people of God throughout all of history, then we must adopt this sort of mindset. You'll notice that here. Isaiah is not thanking God, though of course it's wonderful to do this, for things that have happened to him in his life or his family, right? He's, he's 600 years after the Exodus, but he, he starts there and, be, and he says, I will recount the kindnesses of the Lord. I mean, think about that, right? It's, it cuts so deeply against the American individualistic spirit, right? To say, I'm going to give thanks to God today, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start in 1400. Right? I'm going to go back. But in fact, the Bible does this all the time. People who have no immediate connection to Abraham, the psalmist starts with Abraham, and then he goes through Jake, Isaac and Jacob and down through, the, through Moses, and, and it recounts in these long psalms the, the mighty actions of God. So we have to kind of cultivate this. Things may not be going well for us, but we still have a river of things to thank God for. Right? This is part of the drama. We do this a little bit every week in the drama of the Nicene Creed which forces you to start with God, start with creation, start, go to Christ, go to the Spirit, go to the church, go to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It keeps you on this historical access and it gives you an ability to recount the kindnesses, plural, of God. All of these great things are granted, the end of verse 7 says, according to his compassion and his many kindnesses. I like the way the the ESV puts this here. It says, according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his steadfast love. His many hesed is here, the abundance of his steadfast love. And and this reference to the Lord's steadfast love echoes, echoes. And we should learn to hear this. It echoes Exodus 34, where Moses is given this glimpse, right? Right? He sees the back of God's glory. God passes by in Exodus 34 because Moses said, show me your glory. He passes by, he reveals himself, and here's what he says to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's hesed, abounding in hesed and faithfulness. It is the richest description, it goes on, it's the richest description of who God is and what he is like in the whole Old Testament. This, then, is the source of all of these deeds. It is the being of God himself in his triune glory. A light so transcendent, right? A glory so full that when Moses got but a glimpse of it, right? It caused his face to shine, to be transfigured. And it had to be veiled. So it is out of God himself, out of the infinite wellspring of his holy love, out of his unconstrained goodness, out of his overflowing tender compassion for his saints, that the kindnesses, plural, flow, full and replete. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 
There is no yin and yang with God. God is unconstrained goodness, overflowing compassion. This is the source. God in the fullness of his light and splendor. From him and through him are all things. So secondly, I want us to look at not only the source, but the Savior. This Verse 8. God says, surely, or, or perhaps only, they are my people. So here he's referring to the founding of Israel, their election. God has chosen them, even as he has chosen us. And this makes them children of God. Children, the text says, who are called to be true to God. But of course, you know, we know sadly that Israel ultimately broke the covenant repeatedly and were dispossessed. But we're told here that at the Exodus, the God who elected Israel, who chose them, and you can see this at the end of verse 8, became their savior. Right At the song of the sea, on the other side of the Red Sea, they sing, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So, not only is salvation from the Lord. We saw that in the book of Jonah, right? Jonah says famously at the end of chapter 2, salvation is from the Lord, or salvation is of the Lord. But this moves beyond that, and it's important to catch this. This says the Lord himself is. The Lord himself becomes Israel's savior. So what we have here are foreshadowings of Christmas in Isaiah 63. This is God penetrating down into Israel's darkness and into their bondage to liberate them. You know what this is? We might call this action the word on the road to becoming flesh. This is the word on the road to becoming flesh. And verse 9 of Isaiah 63 is one of the magnificent and underappreciated texts in the whole Old Testament. It says this, In all their distress, he was distressed. Or perhaps in all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's quite astonishing. I mean, even in the Old Testament, through the intimate presence of God's word and spirit, God was in some mysterious and wondrous way, he was descending into Israel's suffering and into her agony. Back at the time of the Exodus, in Exodus 2, when the people groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for for deliverance, the text tells us, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And then God comes down. He's profoundly affected by their misery with all the sympathy and all the love of a father for his children, making their afflictions his own, God knew their sufferings. Even the language boldly suggests being afflicted in their afflictions. Now think about this. This is prior to the incarnation. In some mysterious way, Yahweh, who is impassable, who cannot suffer, who is beyond suffering, who is the immutable God, and whom the confession of the church has always said, God is impassable, God doesn't suffer. Somehow, Yahweh was afflicted in all their afflictions. And he bore their sorrows and their griefs. 
And perhaps even more amazing, verse 9 continues and says, and the angel of his presence saved them. Right? This is the angel. The word just means a messenger. This angel is closely associated with the actual glory of God himself, the portable glory throne of God that followed Israel, right? the pillar and the cloud which followed them in the wilderness. This angel was promised to Israel in her wilderness journey at Sinai. Listen to this from Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Now, this is God speaking of the angel. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he, that is the angel, will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Notice, the angel brings Israel into Canaan. The angel pardons transgressions. The angel has God's name, God's divine glory and attributes in him. And there in Exodus, the promise continues, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. The angel's voice is God's voice. What the angel does, God does. In short, the angel is God, yet distinct from God. Or to put this in Christian terminology, the the angel is the pre-incarnate eternal son of God. There's a a, a world-famous scholar of Judaism, of the history and theology of Judaism, just died in this past year named Jacob Neusner. Taught at Bard, I think, for 30 or 40 years. But... uh, you know, he said on a number of occasions, there is a reason Christians believe in the Trinity. And it's not just because of New Testament stuff. It's because of texts like this. He understood as a scholar of Judaism that you can read this text the way I'm reading it today. Just one text. That, that if we had to, we could make the whole case for the triune being of God from the Old Testament. In fact, you could make the whole case from this text alone. Right? It is through the angel, the messenger, that God himself becomes Israel's savior. And it is through the angel, better yet, it is as the angel, right? It is as the angel that God is afflicted in all our affliction. It is by means of the angel that God's person, his immediate presence, saves us. And you know what else is wonderful here? The angel of his presence is sometimes translated the angel of his face. The angel reflects the face of the Father. The angel is the reflection of the Father's eternal glory. And at the end of verse 9, we're brought back to the opening, to the source, to the, to the wellspring of this remarkable solidarity. Right? It's a solidarity unto salvation. The text says, in his love and mercy, he. Who's he? Well, it's God through the angel. He redeemed them. Right? The God who is love, through that love, with mighty pity, 
right, with conquering compassion, liberates his people. The text has a beautiful closing. It's a beautiful text from beginning to end. But it closes this way. It says, he lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. He delights in the companionship of the beloved. He draws us on eagle's wings and brings us to himself. And here, Isaiah is echoing Moses again. Only this time, it's from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses says this, God found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. It's a beautiful, vivid, very vivid picture of the maternal tenderness of God, who becomes Savior, who's afflicted in all his people's affliction, and who redeems, who liberates, and he does so why? to lift us up into intimate face-to-face communion with him. So God's actions, flowing from the source of God's godness, God's being, are always designed to draw the creation back into fellowship with himself, with the triune being of God. All things are from him, and all things are through him, and all things are unto him. God himself is the end of all his ways. That's really an important thing to grasp, right? Because we often think God saved us so that we can do X and Y and Z. And of course, as far as it goes, that's true, but it's incomplete. Even the doing of X and Y and Z are designed to bring us back into ultimate fellowship with God. So what happens is Christians say, well, God saved us and now I'm called to prayer or evangelism or discipleship, or mission work, or whatever works, service to the poor, all noble and honorable things that we are called to. But what happens is, those things, because we are idolatrous creatures by nature, those things become ends, and God slips back. God sort of becomes a sort of first principle who gives us the power, and he's given us the mandate and all that. But God himself really loses a lot of interest for us. It's the thing, discipleship, prayer, missions, the poor. Those are the things we're passionate about. This text will not allow that. By the way, that's a form of idolatry. Very prevalent form of idolatry in the Christian church. Where great and noble Christian things displace the triune God himself as the end of our affection. As our great high chief end. As our blessedness and reward. God himself is never the means to an end. Never. He is always the end. But if you listen... If you listen, he's often the means to an end. We don't want that. All these other things are noble, and they should be done. But God himself is always the end. That's the importance of saying this. He himself is our salvation. Otherwise, the language of he saved us so that we can do A, B, C, and D becomes corrupt over time. What must be understood is that he himself, in his splendor, is our life and our light and our salvation. Notice how how beautiful this text tends to us in our brokenness. We remain weak here. We remain wholly dependent, even after the initial act 
of redemption. We must, by the unfaltering goodness of our God, the text says, be lifted up and carried all of our days. All the way home. All the way home, as Israel was from of old. Right? There, there's nobody here. There's nobody in the church whom God says, okay, I've been carrying you for a while. I think it's time for you to stand on your own two feet. Why don't you run ahead of me? I'll keep an eye on you. That doesn't happen. The shepherd puts all the sheep on his own back and he carries them home. From beginning to the end, the Lord is our Savior. So let me conclude. I just Here in the conclusion, I just want to make explicit what I trust has been obvious. The text is in the lectionary for this week. Again, I commend the lectionary. There's so much wisdom in it. You'll look at a text like this and you might think at first, what is that text doing here the week after Christmas? But then you dig a little bit in the text and you realize, oh, I know why it's here. <laughs> right? Because it's about Christ. This text is about Christmas in the Old Testament. And I want to just, in closing, unpack the glory of Christ a little more fully. So we said that the reference to God in verse 7 was an echo of Exodus 34. Again, Exodus 34, the most important text on who God is in the Old Testament. And there, God is described as compassionate and faithful, abounding in hesed and steadfast love. This language, we heard it in the Gospel, it's used by John in his prologue when he says this of the Word made flesh. He says the Word was made flesh and he was goes on to say he was full of grace. That, that, that Hebrew word behind it, that Greek word for grace, behind it is the Hebrew word hesed. And truth, behind that is the Hebrew idea of faithfulness. So here's the idea. Exodus 34, Moses wants to see God's glory and God says, I'm the faithful God abounding in hesed. And then John describes Jesus as full of hesed and faithfulness. John is expressly telling us that the glimpse of the God of glory granted to Moses has now been made visible to the nations in Jesus Christ. In him, the God of verse 7, the source of all goodness, becomes flesh. In Jesus, the words are fulfilled from our text, and so he became their savior. What God did through the angel at the Exodus, he has done for you through his son who has taken up your humanity to redeem it. So it's in Jesus Christ, right, where God finally, fully, in a decisive way, becomes afflicted in our affliction. Here he bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, so that he might lift you up and carry you forever. This is the gospel. Christ saves us, not from a distance, not externally, but from within, from inside our nature, underneath our darkness and our fear and our anxiety and our sin, underneath all the forces arrayed against us, underneath our afflictions and our distress. He's the angel of God's face. And we saw that in the New Testament lesson. From 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul tells us that the glory of God is shining in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, his face reflects the face of the Father. When John chapter 1 
when the prologue of the gospel lesson, when John says he was with God, the word was with God, the idea there in the, in the original in the text is that the word was face to face with God. That the word was in this eternal position of communion. So you have the Father and the Son face to face in splendor and glory and love and communion in the power and presence of the Spirit. That is the life of the triune God. And, and it, thus it is no uh, surprise to us when that Son becomes incarnate that we can say of him, he is the angel, the messenger of God's own face. Right? And this, this salvation that's been wrought for you by Christ, will produce children, the text says, right, verse 8, who, unlike Israel, will be true to God. Israel had the angel who wrought salvation. Nevertheless, Israel was dispossessed. It's really a shocking thing. But that is not going to happen to the people of God in the new covenant. Because the glory of God shining in the face of Christ is the unfading glory of a new and a better covenant enacted on better promises. One where all God's children, from the greatest to the least, will know the Lord and have the law written in their hearts and have their sins forgiven. So Christ, the face of God, the good shepherd, carries every last sheep all the way home to glory. Right? It is this, this love This solidarity with us that's on display, that's ever at work when we look, when we turn to the incarnate Son of God, to Jesus Christ. And it's out of this wonder, out of this astonishment, of this culminating mighty act of God in Christmas, the deed of the incarnation, that the prophet sings, that the prophet tells, and then we join in, right? And we remember, we tell, we sing, we extol the kindnesses, plural, of our incomparable God, who is both the source and the Savior. Amen.